0: Good morning. It is Sunday morning on Triple H 100.1 FM and you are listening to Stay In The Loop with Lucy. Now if you haven't joined us before then welcome. You have joined a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences their decision-making processes and their consequences and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can then choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found more sustainable, loving and heartfelt ways to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. The show today is about the heart in all its glory. We might think of it as an organ that simply pumps oxygenated blood around the body and filters the deoxygenated blood. We might be aware of its beat, how we can influence its rhythm through exercise, rest, what we consume and our emotional experiences. But there is so much more to the heart and... I would hazard a guess that uh, our heart is smarter than our brain Now, my guest in the studio today is Phil Shervington, a retired teacher who worked within a team at Knox to reimagine the way religion was taught by putting a curriculum together that offers another paradigm kids can learn from, rather giving them answers rather than giving them answers to questions they haven 't even been asking. The staff learned how to ask fertile questions. How I wish I was a student in your class, Phil. Welcome to Triple H and Stay in the Loop with Lucy.
1: Thanks, Lucy. And and hello and hello to everyone
0: out there. Now, Phil, let's start by giving a little bit of background about you. What were you like as a young man? Were you aware of the heart and and uh, life beyond school, how were you at school?
1: I think I was pretty normal um, as a boy at school. Um, I often think because a lot of my teaching um, was of boys over many, many years and um, a number of, on a number of occasions I, I tried to put myself back, you know, at the time and um, and I was very much, I think very much the, the way that uh, a lot of the boys are today. Um, a lot about sport um yes study was important but it wasn't huge i really didn't have a great idea um, of what i wanted to do who i wanted to be um i had aspirations like many us i suppose for you know for high achieving um grades and then going on into the you know high sort of achieving university courses um for example you know at one stage I thought I'd be a doctor um I would have been a terrible doctor <laughs> I really would have been um I just don't like you know the look of blood I don't like suffering I don't like um all of the uh the stuff that you would be dealing with <clears throat> on a daily basis it's good Maybe, to see
0: that in reflection yeah, isn't
1: yeah. it yes but at the time of course it was more I suppose with you know, people would see that as as a really important thing to do, and yes. and as a measure of you know your, your success, yes. which of course it wasn't. So, and um, my direction was very clearly, in hindsight, um, directed by um, the person that I married. Um, and actually, as a general kind of comment, I, I can honestly say that. Um, the most important decisions in my life have been made by others um, not necessarily by myself um, perhaps um, a part of me um, very very deep inside which um, over a long period I, I hope I've come to understand and, and know more
0: How did you meet your wife?
1: Um, she's going to kill me um, but the truth was that um, we went to schools uh, that were adjacent to each other at, yeah. um, at Chatswood and um, she was the head girl um, at at the girls' school, and um, she was organising for her formal, and um, and I got a call. So oh my <laughs> I goodness! I often say, you know, it was um, yeah. She
0: that's so she beautiful. Asked
1: me, yeah, yeah. So that was back in 1969 on the 16th of August, and um,
0: a pretty smart lady. Yes, yeah. hey? <laughs> pretty smart. maybe,
1: maybe. I think well, sometimes she wonders. But you
0: know, I, I think okay. you are. If you're still together and you're still happy, then there is something about being smart, knowing very early on what was going to.
1: Maybe it's heart smart.
0: Mm. Yeah, maybe it's heart smart. Good, good link there. Now you worked in a number of high schools, and you've worked as a science teacher, but you've also worked as a religion teacher, haven't you?
1: Yes, I have. It's um, funnily enough as i said earlier i didn't really know what i was going to do um compared to to jenny who had a very clear understanding of what she wanted to do and and that was because you know she she wanted to become a teacher um Mm. and and of course she did and um and is still involved we both retired about 18 months ago but um she's gone back a number of times her grandfather had a huge influence on her um he was a, a small schools teacher out in the country in a number of different places, and um, she went on and um, and did teacher education, and I decided I'd started actually a, um, a science degree with you know psychology as, as a sig- significant part of it, and I changed across. I actually did a teacher education course at New South Wales, um, and then started with the department. Um, didn't stay there very long. Um, and from then, which was in the early 70s, uh, I taught in a number of uh, independent schools, mainly boys' schools in the early days, mm-hmm. um, and loved it in lots and lots of ways. Um, but the big change for me was, um, was going from boys' schools into an all-girls school, which um, I absolutely loved. For,
0: what was the difference between teaching the boys and then teaching the girls?
1: I can remember, actually, because um, I left um, the school, which was Bridgetown at St Owens, for a, a short period, and my greatest concern, I said to a number of people, was, I don't know how I'm going to go acting, you know, the guy's role. Um, and that, I suppose, was the difference. I just felt that I could be me. I could be more. Wow.
0: that's so telling acting the guy's role Mm. so within the girls school environment you felt that you could be yourself and it sounds like there was more ease in your body
1: yes um in a lot lots of ways um and it wasn't you know sort of an immediate change it took a lot of you know sort of months um there was a lot of noise, but it was a productive kind of noise in the classroom. Mm. So that whole, you know, sort of stereotyped understanding that a quiet classroom is a, you know, is a significant uh, classroom of learning, which is of course not necessarily the case. Mm. Um, yeah, the ability to make mistakes. I suppose it's funnily enough, um, at Bridgerton in, in the early years, I, I taught science, religion, but also sport, and that became a very significant part of my role. Um, eventually. You know, sort of heading, heading up, but designing a, a curriculum in sports science and and teaching um, PE and also doing a lot of sport. Um, the nice thing was, and this is a really significant reason as well. Um, both my daughters ended up going to the school, and um, so I had a huge involvement after school and training, but also on the Saturdays. And of course, I was I was with my children, and Lovely. and that was huge. Whereas yeah. in the past you know i i 'd had the Saturday sport, but uh, and whilst most I loved it you know in all sorts of ways. Um, I was leaving my family behind mm. um, this way I was involved with them, and they were getting you know um, and I think they really enjoyed it a whole lot of different skills and a whole lot of sports that were non traditional uh, that you now see so many of you know the independent girls schools in this area in particular uh, are really involved in things like touch football obviously and you know, water polo and a whole range of things that just weren't available back then.
0: I can really feel with you, Phil, that uh, family and the connection and interconnectedness is really core to your being. That's what helps you be and work um, really well.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily, you know, totally known and understood. It's, um, I suppose, it's. You know, it's the feeling you get. It's the experience and the understanding, um, but more the feeling. Just the you know the sense that this is right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the affirmation that comes with it. The, mm. you know, all of those things. But it's not you know a highly conscious get out of the you know yeah. bed every morning and thinking this is how I you know understand life and I'm going to continue in this way. Um, it's yeah. funny. It's never really been a um, my way of operating. Um, I've just. Yeah, I've just felt it.
0: Have you noticed that children are very, uh, very, te- very um, in their body? They're very much about what it, what feels right and what doesn't feel right, and that that's something that we lose as we grow up and get older.
1: Yeah, I think it's key. Uh, I really do. And um, what I'd like to talk about at some point is, it, is this notion of activation of the heart, mm. and I think that's really what. Um, what is the problem? the The heart gets deactivated, so mm. um, it doesn't get listened to. It's not that it's not, you know, communicating. Yeah, it's just that uh, our head, often our cranial brain, uh, which is incredibly significant, of course, um, can become, you know, the um, the predominant uh, communicator.
0: So, in fact, if we see ourselves as computers, I think I'll come back to this a little bit later it's like we give all the power to the to the computer without realizing that we are the inputters of that information so the the the, as you get older you think you get smarter because you can compute more but actually you've forgotten to stay with the feeling which actually is the that's the master really if you can stay with your body and stay with your heart and and recognize and still be able to nominate and name what you're feeling then actually it makes life simple it doesn't always make it easy you're not always going to have an easy life but it means that you have a simpler understanding of what's going on in your life
1: yeah i think it's an important distinction um the difference between simplicity and and you know the ease and um I think meditation, in general, for example, uh, which, if you boil it down, it it really comes down to that whole sense of of listening, mm. um, listening beyond, if you like, the signals that are coming from the cranial brain, um, just turning it off or, uh, or attempting to turn it off, um, which is very simple, mm. you know, um, in theory, but it's not an easy process. So. Yeah, that's something that I have been incredibly interested in over many, many years um, and you know, doing a whole lot of sort of research and experience around those, that, that whole concept of what, what does meditation do, why do you do it how, yeah. and, of course, how you do it. Yeah.
0: This morning we are talking about the heart, that stunning organ in our body that is the powerhouse of our body. Without it we are quite simply not here. My guest in the studio is Phil Shervington. I know this is a favourite topic of yours, so let me offer you a fertile question this time. (laughs) What is the difference between our... We've got, obviously, a um, a romantic picture of the heart. It clearly is associated with love, but it it has a function too, doesn't it? And you described that to me when we were chatting earlier so well. So share with us what you would say was the function of the heart and how we might have got it a little, underestimated it slightly?
1: I think we're coming to um, a much broader and deeper understanding of the heart. As you said, the heart has long been associated with love. There's probably more songs and poems written about the the heart than anything else. Um, And words of wisdom, obviously, that, that come off the tongue in conversation, you know, to have a heart-to-heart and what that might mean, um, to listen with the heart. Uh, in front of me are the wonderful words of um, from the Petty Prince, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. So we know that and, and we've known it for a long time. Uh, we've known it for hundreds and, and hundreds of years. Uh, all of the religious traditions um, have Focused on the heart as essential, um, you know the so many of the prayers, the Shema, for example. You know, uh, second part of it, you know, connects with the notion of to to love with your heart as well as your mind and your soul. So we've known that we've known that there's an intuition, an intuitive understanding. But what's different, I think, is probably what been is what's been revealed in the last thirty to forty years, um, and that. ...is really what um, I'd like to talk about briefly. So the research that's, that's coming out, this empirical understanding... ...is now telling us that the heart is much greater than just a pump. Um, it's more than an organ that actually pumps blood around the body. Um, in most uh, living things, or at least uh, living um, animals... ...it's the first of the organs to appear... Uh, well before the brain develops. Um, and the research that we're now seeing um, or hearing about is that the the brain in some ways is, or in many ways, in fact probably more ways than we understand, is actually an organ of knowing. Um, and there are a number of different um, organisations throughout the world. Probably the most significant um, is an organisation called HeartMath, and they're uh, operating out of Boulder Creek in California in the United States and the West Coast. And what they're now um, telling us is that the heart actually sends um, transmissions. In fact, there are more transmissions from the heart to the brain than there are from the brain to the heart. So what are these transmissions? Well, they're communications that um, in, in many ways are telling us how to live our lives, the way that we should be looking uh, at things, making decisions. Um, we also know that there is electromagnetic activity associated with, with the heart. This notion um, of a torus, which is the word that's described, this field that operates um, around the heart, the heart as the centre, I think sometimes when we come in contact, um, we shake hands or we hug, we really do get a sense of the interaction um, of the of, of these um, electromagnetic fields. These tori. We also know that there are biochemical and hormonal um, secretions. <clears throat> Pardon me, but most importantly. We know that there are actually messages that are being transmitted constantly. Um, however, we don't necessarily um, listen to those messages. Uh, the activity of our, what I'll call, cranial brain, our normal understanding of the brain, um, has the ability to actually uh, intercept and disregard these messages.
0: Perfect. It's true, our brain can intercept and disregard and take us on another road. can't it? so the brain is a receiver of information, and if we don't stay connected to our body, then we're far more likely to get distracted would Would you say that that was the case
1: Yes, and I think um, it's we've got to be very careful in two ways not to romanticize the heart uh, and so in in some ways keep it if you like as a metaphoric uh, as an emotional kind of center and at the same time um, or as an alternative to demonize the the role obviously of of the cranial brain um, which is superb it gives us the ability to operate um, in our real world in I guess, what you'd call the temporospatial world. It's the organ Mm. designed to actually navigate us um, Mm. in the past and the future.
0: It makes sense of what we're feeling, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, in a very simple way, we make decisions all day, every day, of um, left or right, you know, up or down, one or two. In other words, um, either all kinds of decisions. And, Mm. And the brain is absolutely superb at, at doing and uh, and actually navigating us you know if we're on the road and we we have to make a decision um or these days we use our satellite navigations but mm-hmm. we know that if we're going to get somewhere we go left uh, yes. i'm not particularly good at this sort of stuff um we know that if we go right we're going in the opposite direction yeah so they, they're they the kinds of decisions that the brain can make, yeah. incredibly important decisions. Yes. It's the decisions on the spur of the moment, the momentary decisions, the decisions that we often, um, I suppose, when we're talking about mindfulness and living in the moment and all these kinds of you know contemporary understandings, that's where the heart has an incredible power that the cranial brain doesn't.
0: And if we look at the adolescent brain, obviously you've worked with adolescents for all of your life. You would understand that there are parts of the prefrontal, the, the prefrontal cortex, that frontal lobe that are not developed. So they're making decisions from the part of their brain that is all about emotion but it's also all about spontaneous Like go for it you only live once and and if the adrenaline's going as well they're far more likely to make decisions that are really not in keeping with if they just stopped for 30 seconds 15 seconds maybe even 10 seconds and just stopped they possibly wouldn't have made the decision to get in that car to throw that Water bomb to you know be do whatever it is that's going to um get them into the trouble that they sometimes find themselves in
1: yes and i guess the other side of it, of course is that um some of the, the decisions they do make are, are, are positive and and yeah. really significant um mm-hmm. we call it i suppose uh, the adolescent brain I, I must say that i think that adolescence um extends right into old age <laughs> um and, and i really believe that Uh, it happens the you know the um, lack of development you know of the areas in the um, the cortex you know prefrontal lobes um, are because the heart doesn't get listened to yes it certainly doesn't get listened to um, you know in adolescence and we can see you know very sort of obvious things around um, the problems there but, as i said I, I think it it continues beyond well beyond adolescence, so the kind of you know decision making that we 're seeing uh, of supposedly you know non adolescent or post adolescent um, people um, are, are very symptomatic i think of of, of poor development of, of of those areas of the brain, and it 's because they're they 're not being made from the heart
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's almost abdicating the awareness of that part of our body that isn't valued as a child and the wisdom of growing up is almost like the shutting down of the heart where it's actually the should be the opposite way around that you actually become more aware and the communication between brain and heart body is actually what helps you understand life and how to function in it
1: sure and and I mean, the wonderful thing is that the, the heart's always there. Mm. Um, it's always been there in all the communities. So, you know, many of our understandings, I think, around um, our Indigenous peoples, for example, you know, who we often point to as, as having this intuitive understanding of relationship um, between each other and obviously with, with the land, Um you know, within their cosmology, call the dreaming, for example, if we're talking, you know, about our uh, our own indigenous peoples, um, I would be very comfortable in describing that as, as heart, even though um, a lot of the elders will call it feeling, but they're, they're not talking about emotionality. They're not talking about, you know, this notion of um, unbridled and, and, as you said before, spontaneous kind of, and often, you know, irresponsible, you know, ac- uh, decisions that are mm. made. These are... Um, when they talk feeling, they're they're talking heart. They're talking about the wisdom um, that comes from the heart, and that stays there all the way. As I say, it's the, it's the first organ of the body to beat. Mm-hmm. It has it's the first organ of the body to you know to maturity, and uh, is very much because it's an unconscious process, is involved with the development um, in the early stages, you know of um, of birth bef- of, of de- development before birth, and then obviously continuing on um it's when we are in a position it's you know we move into i guess what we call an egoic understanding that is i am in control of i am separate from that we are in a position to obviously shut down that communication from the heart
0: Mm. my guest in the studio today is phil shervington welcome phil
1: thanks lucy thank you for having me
0: we are talking about the heart um and, the, and to consider the potential we have in our bodies and how we can bring that into a way of living that considers ourselves as part of a greater whole. Now, I always um, said to my kids when they were growing up that we have a heart that beats and we have a heart that beats in our body and we have a heart that beats within our family. And... I always feel that we have a heart that beats within the community and within the the um, country and with the world. You know, that for me, we're living within a heartbeat. We're living within a body of love that has a rhythm and we have a responsibility to that. So as I've got older and a smidgen wiser... I've realized that when I was growing up, I was deeply hurt by the fact that other people didn't see the need to be as loving with each other as I did. And I also feel that there was a reaction to that by me. And so I decided to take my toys and head home and not be as loving myself as I would have been with other people um i didn't find what i was looking for in religion at all um i didn't find that that livingness of the love there but i was always aware that there was a feeling that i got with certain people that i could feel things when i went into a room and it was there was clearly an energetic field which when i look at the pictures um on the on the web about the heart and the work that heart math are doing and the scientific research going into the um connections that and how the heart is communicating it, that that those pictures make sense to me because in a way it's what i feel i lived as a child what i let go of as a young adult and what i'm coming back to as an older adult that i'm coming back to acknowledge and deepen that relationship of my heart my body and my I guess I could call it the auric field, but for me it's not it's very very clear and very real it's not something that isn't and um, it, that isn't very real and science is starting to recognise this isn't it Phil
1: I think so and it's uh, it's in its infancy obviously and it's uh, um, an area that um, I suppose is not what you'd describe as as normal science. Uh, much the same Quantum way. Quantum
0: physics, maybe?
1: Well, that's, yeah, and that's a classic example too. i you use the wrong word, classic, because it's non-classic. Mm. Um, it's non-classical. Um, and, I mean, the amazing thing is that these discoveries um, are now 100 years old. So you would imagine that we would now start <laughs> to actually <laughs> understand them and accommodate them and incorporate them into our lives. But we don't. Yeah. Um, And and that development is very interesting. Um, Now, it was Aristotle who first, I guess, gave us our understandings, uh, of basic physics. Um, And I think for many people, that's the way that they actually still operate in the world. Um, I'll give you an example. So Aristotle um, argued that ultimately there was, you know, the prime mover and that everything, in a sense, was in movement ultimately because of that prime movement, um, which he, you know, loosely called God. Um, So if I push something, I need to be in contact with that other thing. um, And that seemed to sort of solve all our problems. And, And for many, many years, I can remember as a year nine student or form three in those days, I could not get my head around the fact that a rocket ship, could actually get off the ground i could understand it initially because the gases are pushing against the earth but then i thought well what happens later If there's nothing for it to push against so i'm thinking in an aristotelian way and of course it was newton who argued well actually that's not the way the world works and he introduced a very very different paradigm and obviously out of that came three significant laws of motion um which, of course, rocket ships are able to actually use along with everything else. Now, quantum physics takes us to another step, Um, a non-linear systems kind of understanding of the way the world works. But we're still floundering. We're still, in a sense, operating out of this old Aristotelian or Newtonian frame of mind. A hundred years is a blip in terms of, you know, what, it takes for us to come to understanding um i often used to say to the kids that you can have a great idea um and it's it could be the truth but ultimately the other half which is probably more important is the timing and you can spend so much time pushing forward on your great idea and if people aren't ready for it it's not going to change anything and Mm. i think you know we fall into that trap often Mm -hmm. so we will get there um and i think this is part of i guess the issue you know with our understanding of heart and fortunately we now have some scientific understandings and that's developing you know there are you know huge numbers of research studies that are vigor- um, rigorous; they are empirical and they are telling us um, things about the heart that we only kind of understood intuitively or we talked about metaphorically.
0: I'm very I, I, I you know I, I get research I'm a researcher I'm a social social researcher so I understand the importance I've studied a lot of evidence-based medicine but I also can see that we can give our power away to needing proof, and that actually the proof is in our body, and we and and I can't. I I personally am not going to wait for the empirical evidence that the heart communicates. I think we've got to live that now, so that that proof actually can can so we can be studied and science can can catch up in a way. It's like we're waiting for them to catch up to the livingness, to the way we're living.
1: And I think that's happening. Um, I was talking earlier um, to Lucy about uh, Ken Wilber and one of the great, I think, um, understandings that he came to uh, in a book called um, Eye to Eye was the realisation that that all forms of research uh, actually are characterised by three significant components Um, and each of them, um, in a sense, have to have the three components. So those three components um, are basically it, the ability to be able to identify the evidence. So if you get a young child, for example, to look down a microscope, um, they're not going to know what they're seeing. They need, obviously, instruction uh, or injunction, as it's called, uh, to be able to identify what it is they're actually seeing. Um so they have to have, you know, that instruction, and most of our education is about that. Mm. Um, having got that understanding, they can then recognise what it is they're seeing, or they can actually, you know, prompt beyond that. And then the other important area, of course, is that there must be a community that actually accepts um, that body of evidence. So, if you're doing research, it's not enough. Uh, obviously, for you to do it on your own, you, you have to uh, be in community. They have to be able to accept, uh, verify and obviously you know, support um, and publicise it. Now, it's interesting at the scientific level, uh, at the level, if you like, of, of uh, literature, which is very, very different. Um, for example, if you're reading Shakespeare... Science is not going to help you appreciate Shakespeare. No. All science can do, perhaps, is, uh, is give you an understanding of the, um, you know, the, the materials that the plays may have been originally written on. Um, they can perhaps um, give you a, a, a discernment of, of the inks and, and what was, you know, the chemicals in those inks. But it can't obviously uh, communicate, you know, other aspects of, of the learning. Um, hence the science you know sort of um, and, uh, and literature divide often the other area of course is spirituality which is often dismissed um, but that area of spirituality also has exactly the same three requirements you have to have an understanding and injunction you have to obviously um, have the learning to be able to meditate um, and then to, uh, to recognise the actual experiences that come from that and then the third area, once again, there needs to be a community that obviously knows exactly what it is that you are studying, has the experience, and of course the ability to be able to say yes or no. Um, and it's there in all of those three areas, and I think that's that's one of the big problems. So often, and hence the term will be used of eye to eye. Unless we're comparing apples with apples, of course we're going to get you know. Um, fairly um, immature and unconsidered uh, estimations of the value of a lot of this kind of work and research.
0: What about when we talk about the heartbeat? What about the space between the heartbeat?
1: I'm glad you got onto that. I was getting a little bit waffly there. Um, So we all know, for example, the heart um, beats and it beats, you know, in a double beat um, and we're all familiar with the... um, training effect hopefully of um and the result of, of lowering of, of pulse or heart rate and of course we're familiar with um with blood pressure and and the two components of that and and how that obviously connects with our health um the area that that heart math uh, is looking at and there are other areas as i say um is quite different it's uh, measures what's called heart rate variability and heart rate variability is what's actually happening between the beats um, so, for many many years, all of the actual readings were, as I say, connected to you know to the heartbeat, to the heart rate, and obviously to to the um, the heart pressure or the pressure of the heart pulse. Um, what the new science is um, is able to do is to actually determine what's going on between those beats. Um, in other words what the heart rate variability is actually all about. Um, and what they're recognising, of course, is that this heart rate variability has a direct measure or can be a, a direct measure um, of the way that you're actually experiencing life, the ability to be able to make appropriate decisions, um, your ability to actually accommodate you know, for unforeseen um, events that happen in your life It also, of course, can uh, prepare you for all kinds of um, experiences, very mundane experiences. Um, For example, coming into the studio before, um, I just went through a very simple process uh, of one of the heart math techniques because I was feeling anxious. It was a normal thing to feel um, a little bit nervous and anxious, um, and it's just what I do. Um, So the... Heart rate variability, um, if, if it's actually operating, will lead to what's called um, coherence. I don't want to get into too much detail, but I'll just briefly explain what, what we mean by this term coherence. Um, and in some ways we could describe um, other words such as mindfulness or flow, um, flourishing. In similar ways, I don't say that they're absolutely the same, but I think there's a great similarity between them. What the science community has been able to show is that coherence is actually measuring the ability to manage the autonomic nervous system uh, or the ANS. So just as you can have you know low levels of flow or high levels of flow, you can have low levels of coherence mm. and high levels of coherence. So, what a high level of coherence is, is actually high heart rate variability, which basically means that the heart is actually responding um, at great frequency, and in particular um, under under the momentary conditions of, of each person's life. So, getting back to the autonomic nervous system, in very simple terms, it's made up of two parts, um, the sympathetic, um, which is uh what we I guess we call our fight and flight reaction so the kinds of decisions that have to be made instantly um are triggered by the um sympathetic um system so what we get um with the triggering of that system is higher uh levels of of cortisol into the bloodstream we get dilation uh, of their blood vessels um, we get a, um, a much greater and higher level of engagement in the activity. The other component of the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic and sometimes called the chillax. So we get pretty much the opposite kinds um, of responses uh, when the parasympathetic system is, is activated. So the cortisol levels are drop, the levels of serotonin increase we get um, a change in, obviously, the dilation and so on. And there are many, many more. Um, now, a lot of people think that the best way to live is obviously to have, you know, the parasympathetic system operating all the time. And, of course, that's not the case. Um, I often talk of one example, um, which is the, the case of, um, of our, our famous uh, surfer um, who was attacked by a shark in Jeffrey's um, Bay down in South Africa. Can't think of his name at the moment. I'll think of it in a minute. Um, so his first response um, was to actually to get away from the shark. Unfortunately, the shark had bitten um, onto the board, but had actually um, also bitten his leg rope. So he was not able to to literally take flight. So what he did, of course, was to fight, and he he literally started to punch the shark. So that was his first response and the most appropriate response and that was triggered by the sympathetic um, system. So it's it's not a matter of saying, well, you have to actually... Mick Fanning, thanks, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Mick Fanning who, of course, has just uh, retired. Um, so there are appropriate um, ways of operating, of course, in all conditions. It's interesting um, teaching... Boys in particular, you would often find that their response to a situation that obviously wasn't what they were wanting, you know, is a fight or flight kind of response um, because that's what they're used to. Um, Fortunately, you don't see it as often these days, but I can remember teaching, you know, 30. 35 years ago where you'd find a circle of boys all egging on someone in the middle or a couple of guys in the middle having this fight this was how they were resolving the issue as a it was a fight and of course there'd be many examples of flight um, tied in obviously to our understanding of bullying and sometimes it becomes highly civilized and, and highly sort of you know intellectualized so you've got a maths exam in the morning um, so instead of actually fronting up suddenly you develop symptoms of of some particular ailment and of course plead with your your mum or your dad not to go to school so in a sense our fight and flight are still operating what coherence is it's the ability to be able to manage those so and we don't necessarily know through our brains the best way to actually operate and this is where the heart actually does have the wisdom It can communicate and does communicate constantly what is actually required for optimum functioning, for good performance, for stress reduction, um, for managing anxiety, all of the kinds of things, appropriate decision-making, can actually be communicated and not only can but are communicated um, through and by the heart. So what heart... Uh, math are uh, looking at is the science behind these communications.
0: My guest in the studio today is Phil Shervington. Welcome, Phil.
1: Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: We have been really getting to the nuts and bolts of heart and the mm, the box, perhaps, that we've separated our worlds into. And really, I think, let's... Let's acknowledge that we have had to look at what the function of the heart is, but and and that's given us a really great sense of the theory behind what we know. But what does practice look like, Phil?
1: I think it's so important to actually move into the practice because at the end of the day, uh, there may be a small number of people that are interested in the theory, but obviously it uh, can send people to sleep the um the practice is is why we actually um you know, sort of went you know for this kind of uh approach um we mentioned earlier about um wisdom life faith um studies which was um an attempt to to reimagine i like the the way you described that by a team at uh, at knox um, back in probably 2011 2012 it began um and Part of the uh, approach was to introduce what we call stillness and silence as, as one of the the four pillars or important or essential sort of aspects. The others were to, to move from uh, an answering um, pedagogy to a questioning one, um, to also look um, at the area of uh, a social justice um, and also... Um, to allow the students to begin to understand their own story and to, to make connections, obviously, you know, to to wisdom stories uh, because of, um, hopefully, a dawning realisation of, of, of their own unique and, and important story. But it was the stillness and silence, though, that, I hope that um, really was, was in many ways challenging because, as you can imagine, um, young people and young boys in particular uh, don't like to sit still for very long. But surprisingly, even though there was, um, you know, initial uh, resistance, uh, we were definitely making connection with with another part of of these boys. So we tried a number of different types, including Christian meditation, Um, and probably about two years into um, the introduction of, uh, of Wisdom Life Faith, Um, We had an opportunity, I say we, um, another uh, member of staff who was very much um, tied in with positive psychology uh, direction, the school was moving in, and uh, we went to Macquarie Institute at Chatswood, um, which is aligned very closely with HeartMath, um, and there... Um, purpose is is to do um, training and also to supply uh, particular um, tools that obviously can monitor and and help the process uh, of developing this important um, uh, coherence or um, high heart rate variability so that's what we did so I had been involved in a whole range of meditation over many years uh, particularly as I say Christian meditation and um, I took a whole lot of different things from a lot of, uh, of of different kinds of approaches and it dawned on me at some point that all of them are really doing much the same and that of course is is to activate or to reactivate the heart and that's not to say that it isn't activated of course it is um but just as we have variations in people's ability to manage this or to run fast or or to perform or, or to do anything um there are variations um, and what we could see, of course, was that um, in this area, this important area of listening to the heart, um, the actual levels uh, were not particularly good. So that's what we attempted to do. Um, the practice, um, like most meditative forms, um, is very straightforward, It's very simple, um, but it's not necessarily something that, that people you know, do a lot of. Um, And, of course, the routine becomes important. But once it's understood and there is an attitude and a realization of the value of this particular um, approach, these strategies, um, it can be um, something that can be done very, very quickly and very easily, um, literally, you know, in a matter of seconds. Um, So what I'd like to do is is to take you through um, a simple heart meditation. Um, So if you're listening out there and and you'd be... um, Keen to actually put this into practice, then um, you'll have this opportunity. Hopefully, so I'm reading from a, a simple bookmark, and um, these bookmarks were uh, were run off and available to the boys, and they would put them in the back of their their diaries, and um, they had access to them. You know, at various times, um, I was in a position to be able to to use them in class, in the wisdom life faith, and also in the mentor system. Um, and I've got a whole range of different feedback, of course. But The first process is to, is to block out um, through the eyes any senses. So you simply close your eyes. So we'll just go into this mode. So having closed your eyes, you're now shifting your attention from thinking to feeling. And it's an interesting um, thing to actually ponder... To turn thinking off is not easy. It's something that obviously just continues on. Um, It was once described, our brain activity is like a tree full of chattering monkeys. Or if you've been down to Manly around um, dusk and all the lorikeets come into the palm trees, they just go um, absolutely berserk. So the feeling is literally the sense of touch. And the way I suggest you do this is to actually breathe through partly closed lips and feel the cool breath just coming in over the lips onto the tongue. Now what that will do is it will redirect attention away from thinking and that's really important. So just do that a couple of times. Feel that coolness. It was funny, I was in a group at one stage and someone asked the question, What do you mean by feeling? And the instructor simply went up, put their finger on their wrist and said, That's a feeling. We're so in our heads. We're going to slow our breath down now and we know that there is a huge connection between the activity of the heart and the actual rate of our breathing. Normally we breathe probably once every six seconds, we're going to slow it down to about once every ten. So, and we're going to actually inhale for four seconds and exhale for six. So I'll just take you through, just inhaling one, two, three, four, exhaling five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, so just do that, and as you feel that breath coming in, you're slowing your breathing. So we're halfway through the process. Very straightforward, very simple. Okay, the next stage now is just to continue with that process, but now to f- imagine that you're breathing far down, deeper into your chest around the region of your heart. So as that breath comes over your lips and you feel that sensation, let the breath penetrate down deep into the heart and actually picture it coming from the heart. Remembering to exhale for six seconds, slightly longer than the inhalation. Again, this is what the research is telling us, that that has a greater impact. Now the last section is a re-experiencing rather than a thinking. Probably the most difficult of the steps, but very manageable. So these are not necessarily things you do separately. It's all part of a process. So you continue to breathe through parted lips, feel the coolness of the breath, slow the breathing, deepen it down to the region of the heart and now I want you to re-experience a heartfelt moment. Now this heartfelt moment could be anything that works for you, an experience that is uplifting and that can come from a special experience, a special person, a pet, a place, or a time. But it's the re-experiencing that is significant. And that's obviously going to be very, very personal. So that's it. They're the steps. So let's go through once again. So you close your eyes, just to eliminate the visual... You feel the cool breath coming in through parted lips to move your attention away from thinking to feeling. Slow the breath from one every six seconds to one every ten seconds, four seconds in, six seconds out. Deepen the breathing to the region of the heart and finally to re-experience a heartfelt moment wherever and whatever that might be for you. And that's it.
0: Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Phil. Well, if you are still awake and you want to start your day, then bring that into your movements because, of course, that's the important thing about meditation is that we don't leave it where we experience it but when you can feel that love in your body then you bring it into activity one of the things that i really loved about that was the opportunity to just stop and to feel your breath and we can we can the the important thing with meditation is to make it yours and feel what build the relationship with your body as you do it one of the things Phil was saying to me yesterday was that he one of the early meditations he learned he had to do it for half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening which is unrealistic in our in the world that we live in but I remember distinctly going um, on a work retreat and they took us to this place where they were talking about stress and meditation and I had three children under Six, and I just said, You have got to be kidding me. The thought of sitting down for however long and doing this meditation is just not realistic. And they said to me, Oh, well, um, do you go to the loo? And I said, Yes, I do. Thank you very much. And they said, Beautiful. The moment you sit down and you close that door, that's your meditation time. That's it. No one's allowed in the bathroom with you. You tell the kids they have to wait outside, they can wait 30 seconds, a minute. And that's your time. And just the presence in your body or the breathing that you do when you're with yourself, that's meditation, the connection of you with you. And then you can take that back out into the world. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that we do all the time is go to the loo. It's a, a function that we have to have to do no matter who we are, what success we have in life, what perceived failures we have in life or anything. So don't leave any meditation when you start movement. Bring it into your movement. Phil, I can't thank you enough. You have given us a really rounded a rounded picture and what I can feel is that this is about relationships with ourselves and building that relationship with stillness and silence about the relationship that we can have with animals and with each other and with the world. You know, it just changes so much.
1: Yes, I think that's so true. You really don't know, um, I suppose, how it's going to actually affect you. Um, and I guess the the best way to finish is to say that what we just experienced um, is what we call activating the heart. Um, and it has a huge or can have huge impact in terms um, of how we live our lives, how we experience ourselves and others, the environment, um, and of course how we make decisions. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Phil. Well, we've come to the end of the show, how fast that comes around. Um, it seems that the heart is the brain that we can all be be um, connecting to. What, how can people find out about what you do and where to find you? And I know I'm trying to persuade Phil. Let me tell you, three weeks' time and counting, we're going to have our international Men's Day event around the fountain in Hornsby. It's going to be a monstrously large family fun day. We're going to have Triple H. You're going to be there. We're going to have a, an outside broadcast all day with um, Jason leading the the way for us uh, throughout the day. We're going to have um, a push cart course, which we can people can challenge each other to go up and down. We can have time trials on that. We're going to have a performance space. We're going to have some kids' activities so you can bring your children and your grandchildren. And We're going to try and have lots of stalls. So far, they're building lots of stalls where men can actually go and have some time for them so we've got massage we've got people doing um sport conversations about uh, fitness and exercise we have um we have a psychologist who just is going to you know just do some simple things which help put things in perspective and we're trying to persuade them Phil and his, his team to come down so that you can actually see what, what this feels like. I don't know how well the meditation would go with, around screaming kids, but you never know. I mean, we need to be able to be connected with ourselves no matter what's going on around us. So. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's true. In fact, um, you know, you get to the, the point where you don't need to close your eyes. Mm. Um, as you probably know, most Buddhist meditation actually, um, you know, is done with the eyes partly so that mm. you're not disengaging, mm. you know, with this so-called other world, which, of course, it isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually, I'm very keen to be involved. Um, just a matter of talking to some people. Yeah. Um, if people are interested, probably the easiest way um, would be to actually make um, just go online and have a look at the Macquarie Institute. Okay. Um, so if you just Google Macquarie Institute, you will see, as I said, the um, the Australian New Zealand version of HeartMath. Um, and also if you wanted to get my details, um, I'm sure Lucy will be able to post those. So I, I do have do, a, I think,
0: yeah, yeah, whatever you like. So
1: I have a, um, a small, well, I have an ABN and a, a business called Wisdom Matters. Uh, not that it's, um, sustaining me. Um, that's not the point. <laughs> so yes, I'd be happy to do, to help out.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much, Phil as I say, only three weeks to go, so until the International Men's Day event and live broadcast from Hornsby. So we may well keep the theme of communication going on over the next couple of weeks. Don't forget that we're a slap bang in the middle of the HSC at the moment and we've just finished the Invictus game. So I suspect that the next couple of weeks we're going to have conversations about life beyond or when life changes. I've got a few shows in mind that I'm just putting finishing touches to, but, you know, life doesn't always go the way we think it's going to go and we need to be able to respond to whatever life throws at us. And, you know, life beyond the HSE is probably more important than the HSE In itself because there are always ways we can retake and redo and uh, revise, as in revise our plan, our life plan of what we thought was going to happen. Now you can tune in live to any of those shows on Triple H at 8.30am on Sundays or listen later in the day via the Stay in in the Loop with Lucy podcast, wherever you get them. And don't forget, I'm on iTunes podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher and TuneIn. It is always pertinent to remind ourselves that whatever has or is happening in our lives, we are and always will be us, constantly learning, but underneath and in our essence, we're amazing. The key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with our body that holds that essence so we can recognize when our body's trying to tell us something's not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. By listening and responding, we can build the tools to address what we perhaps don't yet feel equipped to manage. Because of course, most likely we do have the skills. We just haven't got the confidence to apply them. Look for support in the community. It is there. So time to open up to that support and learn to trust again. That way we don't wait for life to come to us. We take ourselves to life and be the change we want to see. Till next week's show. Thank you, Phil.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: Beautiful. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.